This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. I am speaking on marriage this afternoon. And Michelle is not here to supervise me, which is either the most trusting or the most reckless thing she has ever done in our marriage. It's hard to discern sometimes. She, in fact, is home today because she has some kind of weird ear infection. So I made up, I found out you can um, take a sock and fill it up with rice and stick it in the microwave and then put it against your ear. It's like a nice little hot water kind of heating pad. So she's probably walking around the house right now in her bathrobe with a couple of my socks filled with rice tied to her, her head with a, with a scarf. That is my glamorous wife, and I dearly love her. <laughs> so, and that's what marriage is all about, walking around like that in those kind of situations, isn't it? So let us turn to the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, continuing in our series called Jesus in Action, and we are in Mark chapter 10 this afternoon. So if you have your Bible, please open it up. I think it will appear on the screen momentarily. Mark chapter 10. Listen to the word of the Lord. Jesus then left that place, Galilee that is, and he went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This is the word of God. Well, welcome to the traditional Advent message on divorce. (laughs) This sounds like a case of terrible timing on my part. But perhaps it isn't, because when Jesus came, he came into a hard and difficult world. Not a world filled with cute little shepherds and delightful angels, a world where relationships break and are shattered, a a world where men and women who are married turn against one another and the relationship is torn apart. This is the real world of sin and broken relationships that Jesus entered into. And actually, divorce is part of the Christmas story, for as you recall, after Mary received this word from the Lord and she became pregnant, as we heard earlier this afternoon, Joseph, who was betrothed to her, being a righteous man and realizing this woman is pregnant and it was definitely not from me, he resolved to divorce her quietly, to put her away quietly. So Jesus was very nearly the son of a divorced woman. So divorce is part of the broken world of Christmas. And those of us who are married know that the very best feelings in life come from marriage, don't they? Sweetness and closeness and oneness, companionship and love. But marriage also brings forth the very worst feelings we can have of shame and contempt of anger and perhaps even hatred. Marriage can bring out some really bad and terrible feelings between a man and a woman. And Jesus comes into this world to address that awful reality and to bring salvation and reconciliation. 
Now, the context of all this in, in the book of Mark is Jesus talking about discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus as his disciple? And he's talking about discipleship in the context of relationships. Last week, we talked about being a servant to one another and going down and taking the very lowest place. And now, Jesus is using this approach by the Pharisees as an opportunity to talk about what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple in the context of marriage. What does it mean to be a married disciple of Jesus? Now, thankfully, marriage is not the only place to be a disciple of Jesus. Our Lord was himself a single man. And it would be wrong to say that marriage is the only place you can be a fulfilled human being or, or um, obey God's plan for you or follow Jesus. Jesus himself was a single man, and he blesses the state of singleness, and he calls people to that state. But Jesus, as a single man, also performed his very first miracle at the wedding at Cana, turning water into non-alcoholic grape juice, (laughs) into wine, the joy of wine, because marriage is something that God loves and God blesses, and he brings forth joy and pleasure in the context of marriage. Jesus' very first miracle was to make a wedding a success. And now in Mark chapter 10, Jesus has left Galilee for the last time, his home country, a place of rough villagers and farmers and fishermen, and he's come down south to Judah, the place of sophisticated city dwellers, the the, um, economic and religious elite. Jesus has come down to minister there. And as was his custom, when the crowds come streaming to Jesus, Clearly, his reputation has preceded him. He teaches them, as was his custom. But Mark does not tell us what Jesus taught them. He spent days and days teaching huge crowds of people. The lecture is not recorded. But what Mark does tell us about is an impromptu question and answer session after the lecture. Because when Jesus is done teaching, these Pharisees, these religious leaders come and approach Jesus with a question. And they're asking him this question to test him. Really, to lure him into a trap, to trip him up and find some way of entangling Jesus in a controversy he might rather not address. And guess what? Marriage and divorce are very tricky topics. And if I'd been thinking ahead and planning a little better, I would have handed this sermon off to someone else. This, after all, is why we have an intern, to give him these kind of difficult passages. I mean, here I am. I'm a new pastor in this church. I'm in my honeymoon period. You all still like me, I think. And I'm blundering into this sermon on divorce. Divorce should never be brought up in the honeymoon period. It's a bad, bad idea. But here we are talking about divorce. And probably some of you are going to be a little irritated or perhaps even offended at what I have to say. And maybe it was the hope of these Pharisees that by getting Jesus to speak on the record about divorce, that he could get some people in the crowd against him. But there may be something even more sinister going on because Jesus, being across the Jordan, is in the territory of Herod Antipas. This was the territory that John the Baptist was ministering in beyond the Jordan. And do you remember how John the Baptist met his end a few chapters ago? He was speaking out against the illegitimate, adulterous divorce of King Herod to marry his brother's wife. And John the Baptist spoke out against this. Herodias, the woman involved, had a cold fury and vengeance against him, which ended with John the Baptist's head being delivered to Herod on a platter. And it's very likely that the Pharisees were hoping to get Jesus to meet the same kind of end that his forerunner did. So Jesus is being lured into a minefield by these Pharisees. And their question is this, in verse 2. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it lawful, is it legal, according to the Old Testament law, for a man to divorce his wife? And what's not quite so clear, but what is clear in the parallel account in Matthew's gospel in chapter 19, he records the full question, which is this. 
Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? The question really is not whether divorce is legitimate or not, but in what cases can divorce be allowed? Is it lawful? And they're trying to lure Jesus into this controversy that was going on in the time of Jesus between two rabbinic schools. There was the school of Hillel, which held that a man can, yes, a man can divorce his wife for any and every reason. And this controversy goes back to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 24, the first four verses, which says, in essence, if a man divorces his wife for being displeased with her because of some kind of impurity, some kind of defilement, then he has to give her a certificate of divorce. And if she goes and marries another man and he divorces her, he's not allowed to take his wife back again. That relationship is over completely. This is the case that we're talking about. And there was a debate about what does that word defilement mean? What does it mean to find, to be displeased with some kind of defilement in your wife? And the school of Hillel said, it's for any and any reason. If you dislike your wife for any reason, you can write up a certificate of divorce and send her away. And there's actually a document uh, from this time period giving some examples of some of these causes. One of them was, if your wife cooks a meal badly. If she burns the bread, you can send her away. Another one was, if you find a more attractive woman than your wife. You're at the mall, you're sitting at the food court, and some gorgeous babe comes by, and you look at your wife, she's looking a little shabby, a little dowdy, and you can give her divorce so you can marry that woman. These were the kind of things that were happening in Jesus' day. Divorce was easy, and it was common, for men at least. And there were probably just as many divorces back then as there were today. That was the school of Hillel. The opposing, more conservative school of Shammai said, no, no, defilement refers only to some kind of sexual infidelity. That's the only way you can divorce your wife. If she commits some kind of adultery or is unfaithful in some sexual way, then you can and you must divorce her, the man at least. These were the two schools of thought, and they were trying to trying to bring Jesus into it. So there was this idea that divorce was basically a disposable contract, where the male at least had the right, if he chose, to send away a woman if she just was not working out for her. And they were looking at this text in Deuteronomy as kind of, they were looking at it to find some kind of loophole, some way that they could get what they were wanting, which was not their wife. And so, Jesus asked them this question, as he often does. He answers a question with a question of his own, and he asks, well, boys, what did Moses command you? And they say, Moses permitted, notice the difference, not command, but permit, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away, citing Deuteronomy chapter 24. And Jesus' response is that this text in Moses was there because their hearts were hard. Moses wrote this. He allowed for this because your hearts were hard. There's a story of Mark Twain, the American humorist who died about 120 years ago, and he was not a Christian. He was, in fact, quite anti-Christian. And one day, a friend walked into the room, and Mark Twain, lo and behold, was reading a Bible. And he jumped up guiltily and said, just looking for loopholes. And that's the way we are often tempted to read the Bible, are we not? To look at it, not to discover what is God's will for my life. How can I work out my own love for God and submission to his will? No, no, we're not reading the Bible that way. We're asking ourselves, how much can I get away with? How much can I indulge my hard and sinful heart? And perhaps if you are married and things are going badly for you, you may be very interested in what are legitimate causes for you to get rid of your husband or wife who's causing you difficulty. And this is the way that these supposedly conservative, supposedly holy and godly religious teachers were reading their Bible. How much can I get away with? And Jesus says, Moses only wrote this down because you guys have hard hearts. Your hearts are not soft. They're not full of love and generosity and faithfulness. You have hard hearts. 
So what Deuteronomy 24 expresses is not God's perfect goodwill for how marriages ought to be. This is a concession because Moses knew and God knew that in a fallen world with a perverse, disobedient people, marriages sometimes, marriages often fail. There are two sinners living together at close quarters, and sometimes it just doesn't work out. And Moses gave this instruction to minimize the damage of a divorce. He doesn't say you should get divorced or even you may get divorced, but if a divorce does happen, you need to write out a certificate and you cannot take this woman back. It was all about minimizing the damage from divorce. In our house, we have a drawer full of bandages and we have a a bright red fire extinguisher in the kitchen. But our children should not take the presence of bandages and fire extinguishers to assume that what mom and dad want is for them to stab each other in the hand and light the curtains on fire. Those things that are there in case that kind of evil does happen. It's going to be minimized. No one's going to bleed to death and our house is not going to burn to ashes. That's what those things are for. And in the same way, this instruction on divorce does not express what God wants for the marriages of his people Israel, but to minimize that damage and to make sure that no one is hurt by the trauma of divorce more than they need to. This, Jesus says, is not God's ultimate plan in creation for what a marriage between a man and a woman ought to be. And notice, incidentally, how full of authority Jesus is. Here are these different rabbinic schools squabbling over the interpretation of this minor text in Deuteronomy, arguing over exactly how these Hebrew words should be interpreted. And Jesus comes in and says, no, actually, the law of Moses is not really relevant in this situation. That was not God's ultimate will. Here is the ultimate will of God for marriage. That took some guts to do. And Jesus is speaking as the revealer of God's perfect will for us. So Jesus takes them from Moses in Deuteronomy back to Moses in Genesis, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And he points them to what happened at the beginning of creation. Before the fall into sin, when Adam and Eve wrecked everything. Before that, what happened? In a perfect world without sin, what was marriage like then? And let's not forget, marriage was not something that God brought into the world when it was already smoking and in flames. Marriage is an ordinance of God that he brought into the Garden of Eden. And the fact that we still have marriage today is one of the few things that have been salvaged from paradise. And our heart should be filled with thanksgiving that even though there there are angels with flaming swords at the entrance to that garden, barring humanity from the tree of life, that still in our marriages, we get to experience a little shimmer, a little sliver of the original goodness of God's blessing. And it's very easy looking at our mate to be filled with disgruntlement and ingratitude at what they are. But we need to pause and allow our hearts to be filled with thanksgiving. That if you are married, God has not condemned you to wander the world alone. Difficult as you are, and you are very difficult, so your spouse tells me, difficult as you are, there is still someone who loves you and cares about you and is there in the morning when you wake up looking you in the eye. And that is a great gift from God to selfish and annoying people. And we should be very thankful to the Lord for giving us that person. So here we are, the blessing of marriage at the very beginning of creation. And at that time, Jesus reminds us, quoting Genesis 1 verse 27, God made them male and female. In the image of God, he created them Male and female, man and woman, both created in the image of God. And this gender differentiation is God's divine plan. It's not a human invention. 
It's not left up to us to determine how many genders there are or which one we're going to slot into. This is how God designed the world. Male and female in the image of God, and it's all very good. That's the way things ought to be. And this gender difference between a man and a woman is actually part of the wonder and mystery and beauty of marriage. Frustrating as it is at times, infuriating as it might be that your partner is so oddly different from yourself, that is actually the beauty of the relationship that God designed. And a marriage between a man and a man or a woman and a woman cannot express this the way God designed in a marriage between one man and one woman. And one of the lessons of marriage that we need to learn is to accept the otherness of our partner as something good. And for the first four or five years of our marriage, which were absolutely horrific as opposed to difficult, which was the next slot of years, Michelle and I really struggled with this. And I looked at her and I thought, you know what Michelle's problem is? She needs to be more like me. Cool, rational, thoughtful, methodic. If only Michelle was more like Bart, she would be the ideal partner. And she was glaring at me across the table thinking, if only Bart was more like Michelle. Kind and emotional and warm and imaginative and freewheeling. If only he was more like Michelle, then we could reach perfection and joy and intimacy in our marriage. My sisters had a little doll when I was younger that they called Bartranda. <laughs> Bartranda, Bartranda, let down your hair, they would, they would sing over this little doll. And it would actually be a really terrible thing for me to be married to Bartranda. Can you think, can you imagine how terrifying a female version of myself would be? And if such a horrific figure is wandering the earth, may God keep her from me. Because that would be an awful, awful, awful marriage to be looking into the mirror at a reflection of myself. God has ordained that I be married to someone very, very different from myself. And he has ordained that you, if you are married, be married to someone marvelously, strangely, and infuriatingly different from yourself. And it was a real breakthrough in our marriage when we finally agreed, I'm just going to be thankful that you are you. There is change that needs to happen in your life and in your character, but you need to be changed into the image, not of myself, but of Christ. And instead of being angry at you for not being more like me, as if that's a good thing, I am going to be thankful for it and allow myself to be filled with wonder at the mystery of this person who is so awesomely strange and different from myself. That is the way that God designed it, and it's a really good thing. So Jesus says, at the beginning, God made them male and female. And then he goes on to quote from Genesis chapter 2 about how a man must leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, to cleave to her or to cling to her. And marriage begins with old loyalties being severed. There is no closer natural relationship than between a child and his parents. And there are some soft new babies in our church, so close to their mom and to their dad. But that close relationship, close as it is, must end one day, the way it is now. And the loyalty of that boy or that girl has to be taken away from mom and dad and turn to the husband or to the wife. Saying yes to this man or this woman involves saying no to everyone else, forsaking all others. And so parents need to respect the integrity of their children's marriage and resist the temptation to step in there and try to fix things. That marriage is its own sacred thing, and it belongs to this man and this woman, and they need to sort things out and fight things out for themselves. And probably most of us have found in the early months or years of our marriage that one of the things that needed to happen was for us to make sure that those relationships really were severed properly. And for typically, you know, the groom has a conversation with the bride, and like, you need to talk to your mother. And to remember, my loyalty is now with this woman 
and I need to say no to my mom and dad. You need to give us some space, stop butting into our business, and let us be man and wife, forsaking all others. And at the beginning of marriage, at the foundation of marriage, is this reality that under God, our supreme loyalty is to each other. Under God, my supreme loyalty is to this woman, Michelle. Not to any of you guys, to her. That is my supreme loyalty. And nothing else can be allowed to interfere with that relationship. And of course, as we're married, there are many other seemingly more important things that come along. Our job, our business, our school, our ministry, friends of either sex, even our children are not allowed to supersede the marriage relationship. This is the most sacred and the most holy relationship possible on this earth, forsaking all others. And perhaps after this message, you and your spouse ought to have a conversation and ask each other, do you feel like my highest loyalty is to you? Do you feel that from me, Michelle? Or do you feel like I'm continually choosing other things over you and that you are always coming in second place? True marriage involves forsaking all others, even the good things and the good relationships for the best and most important one, which is the marriage relationship. So, marriage involves leaving father and mother and being united with one's wife so that the two can become one flesh. Being united involves what the old versions called cleaving to one another or clinging to one another, being fused together as one. So when you get married and make those vows and slip that ring on each other's fingers, you're no longer two separate autonomous individuals. The two of you have now become something else. It's no longer Bart and Michelle. Now there's a Bart and Michelle, new creature that God has made, two people fused into one. This new thing is created when you get married. It's marvelous. And I think it's Ray Ortland that says... Marriage involves walls going up around the two of us, but walls coming down between the two of us. There need to be high boundaries around your marriage, but no boundaries between you because the two of you have now become one. Marriage involves being naked and unashamed like Adam and Eve. And erotic as that might sound, it's truly a frightening thing to stand naked and uncovered before someone else so that they can see you as you truly are, which is not always a pretty sight. I'm not talking sexually here. I'm talking about relationally and emotionally. There are some ugly things within us, and we are called to share that with the other person. Becoming one means sharing your very self. Sharing your resources, obviously, but also your mind and your heart and your will becoming one. So there's nothing left in reserve. I don't have my own bank account in any way. Michelle and I are pooled completely together. And one of my challenges um, in our marriage, honestly, was that I found it difficult to be honest with Michelle about my feelings. I'm a middle child in a family where there was a lot of controversy, plus I am Canadian, which is a deadly combination. And I was always concerned to say the right thing. What is, what is the godly spiritual thing to say in response to this? Michelle didn't care about that. She wanted me to share how I was really feeling, which I refused to do. I'm a man who likes to keep his cards very close to his chest and not share them with anyone. That is just my natural instinct. And she was constantly pushing and prodding and poking and jabbing me, trying to get some kind of reaction out of me. And one day, we were in the kitchen in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, and she poked me one too many times. And I lost it. And there was a carton of eggs that I just started throwing at her. I mean, one by, I didn't heave the whole carton at her face. I'm, I'm not a monster. I took them out one by one. 
these raw eggs, and I just started hucking them in rage, just hucking them at her face as she was dodging those eggs. And Michelle was delighted. (laughs) She was really pleased that this happened, because finally Bart is opening up and he's expressing some emotion. Now, months later, as we were cleaning the kitchen, we'd find bits of dried yolk on the top of picture frames on the walls, and these gestures are exciting, but you do have to pay for them later. (laughs) But I needed to learn to disclose myself to Michelle and allow myself to be known by her. That is what oneness involves. And this oneness means that our marriage is now about us, not about me but us. And our selfishness is always luring us into these fights where it's about my interests versus her interests. And it's a zero-sum game. If she wins, I lose. And we're going at each other, hammer and tongs, trying to fight for our little scrap of territory. And so often, in the middle of that kind of argument, the light has gone on for either Michelle or for myself. We go, whoa, whoa, wait a second. We need to be fighting not against each other, but against the outside enemy. We need to fight together in the right way. You know what I'm saying? Be on the same team, side by side, fighting against our common enemies that want to destroy our marriage. Because marriage is about us versus me. And if it's all about me versus her, the marriage is basically doomed until we can remember that we are actually one. Paul says in Ephesians that he who hurts his wife is hurting his own body. What a foolish thing to do to start fighting and bickering and jabbing at this precious person that God has given you. You are actually attacking yourself. You're bringing death to both of you. And so Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Every marriage is a union that God has brought together. Every marriage between a man and a woman is something that God has caused to happen. And behind your romance and your courtship, however it might have happened, and we have some very weird stories in this church, however it happened, God was the one who brought you together. And whether you went down to some government clerk and signed some paperwork or you were married in a cathedral with an archbishop present, God was the one who brought the two of you together. God is the officiant of every marriage. And what God has brought together, no one is allowed to break apart. Most of you who have known Michelle and I for a while have heard about our baby cradle. Because this is the most serious bone of contention within our marriage. When we got married, Michelle's grandfather, who is now in his 80s, built a baby cradle for us. He was looking for some great-grandchildren, obviously. And I am positive that what he did was to go on the websites of every major airline, look at the luggage dimensions, and build this thing one inch larger in length and width and height. It's just perfectly oversized for everything. And we have taken this beautiful cradle, and we have shipped it from the East Coast to the West Coast of North America, and then done it again. We've spent hundreds of dollars lugging this cradle around. I think it's only been used once or twice. And it is now sitting in an attic with some friends right now in North America, and long may it stay there. And our argument, of course, is whether or not it's worth it to send this thing around. That's actually not the point of my illustration. I am abusing my pulpit power to carry on this long-standing feud with my wife. But the way her grandfather built this cradle was not like any sensible person would have done with Ikea parts, you know, where you just take out the key and disassemble this like I have done with many a billy bookcase and poang chair. No, he glued this thing solidly together. And I have tried to prize this beast apart The only way this thing can be disassembled is with an axe. It is solid. And this is the way that God has designed marriage. He has not connected two people with those Ikea parts. He has fused them. He has glued them together. And the only way a relationship can come together is if someone takes an axe to it. And when that happens, both 
halves of the cradle get splintered dangerously. And no marriage can be separated and rent asunder without serious damage to both the husband and the wife and the children and everyone involved. The good news of this verse is that God has planned your marriage. And God wants your marriage to succeed. And it's often been a comfort to Michelle and I when we have been glaring at each other, filled with anger, that no, God was the one who brought us together. It wasn't just our idea. This was from God. And therefore, we can go to God and claim his promises and his plan and say, God, this was your idea. We have no idea how we're going to get out of this dead end. And so we're going to you to plead and ask and claim that you be the one to rescue us. There may be tension in your marriage this afternoon. I would expect for a good percentage of people, there is probably some tension given the law of averages. And you may feel hot with anger or worse, cold with indifference toward the person who is sitting beside you this afternoon. And there is grace in God's command that no one is allowed to break up your marriage because he wants you to persevere through those difficult times to come into the sunlight of God's blessing to a place of love and mutual acceptance and enjoyment where God is glorified and you are filled with happiness and joy. That is what God wants for your marriage. And God says, let no one Jesus says, let no one separate what God has joined together. He doesn't say no one can separate what God has joined together, but no one should separate. Sadly, people can damage and destroy what God has made, but it grieves the heart of God, and it is an act of disobedience to him and an act of failure as disciples if we abandon the one that God has given us. And we have to remember that divorce is never the plan of God. It is never the will of God. And it is always the result in some way of human sin. So Jesus has given this teaching to the Pharisees. They are silenced. And then Jesus goes into the house with his disciples, which in Mark is always the place for private questions and conversations with Jesus. And the disciples ask Jesus about his teaching. And he responds and he says to them, In verse 11, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. And adultery is a shameful treachery and betrayal of someone who has entrusted himself or herself to you. We use this euphemistic language of having an affair But we need to avoid that word because it softens what is actually a horrible betrayal. Something that is about lying and deceit and hurting someone else deeply. It's a breaking of holy promises to indulge your own selfishness. And Jesus hates it. Now, there are some exceptions to this. We're not going to get into this in great detail, but if you look in Matthew 19, Jesus says that except in the case of adultery, if there's been horrible adultery, that is a legitimate reason to divorce a spouse. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 talks about the situation of a Christian being married to a non-Christian. The non-Christian wants to leave, and as a Christian, you can quietly let them go because you're seeking peace above all. I don't want to get into this, the, the exceptions in too great detail because either I'm going to say way too much for most of us and simultaneously way too little for a few of you potentially. And so if you have some kind of situation or circumstance, I would be happy to talk with you and pray with you and search the scriptures together. So we're not going to go into that in great detail today. And notice too, I should mention that Jesus talks about the one who divorces, not the one who is divorced. He's talking about the one who initiates the separation of the marriage. If that person marries someone else, they are committing adultery against her. He's not saying that about the person who is divorced and who is abandoned. 
And of course, in any situation, we need to remember that our God is a gracious God. And divorce is not the unforgivable sin. And if you have been involved in some kind of divorce, whether you were full of sin or the innocent person, God is a God of grace and kindness, a God who restores people and brings love and goodness into their lives. And so if you've been through a divorce, that does not mean this is the end of God's goodness and kindness in your life. Thank God he is gracious to sinners, which we all are. I think it's also important to notice in the way Jesus replies compared with the Pharisees. They're talking about a man who divorces his wife. And what they describe, it's the guy who holds all the cards and you can send the woman off whenever he wants. And the Pharisees' mindset, your wife is basically a piece of property that if you're displeased with, you can just go back and get a refund. Jesus here is treating men and women as equals in the marriage relationship. God created them male and female in his image at the beginning. And notice he says that it's both the man and the woman who are sinning if they divorce their partner. Both the husband and the wife in Jesus' minds are equal moral agents in marriage. Equally holy or equally sinning as the case may be. And we also need to remember that according to Jesus, God is the Lord of every marriage. It's not the husband who is the Lord of the marriage, as the Pharisees taught, nor is it the wife who is the Lord of the marriage. Ultimately, it's about submission to God himself. And a faithfulness in marriage is an expression of our faithfulness to Jesus as his disciples. And this is a gracious command. Harsh as it might seem, In your situation, perhaps, this is a gracious command of Jesus forbidding divorce. And I think of the tough times that Michelle and I have slogged through over years. And we would have left each other long ago, honestly, if Jesus had not commanded this. And we were probably obeying legalistically. We were probably obeying for the wrong reasons. But this command was God's grace in our lives to enable us to press through and persevere through the tough stuff so that our marriage now is, it's, it's happy and joyful and very, very sweet. And we never would have gotten to this place if we had gotten rid of each other years ago. We are always far quicker to give up on other people than God is. And this command can be a means of grace in our lives to enable us to press through towards goodness and blessing in our marriage. So, in Matthew, it's interesting that the disciples' reaction, the reaction of the 12 to this very high teaching of Jesus on marriage and divorce, they are just aghast. And their response is, in this case, Jesus, it's probably better that no one get married. If this is the standard for marriage, that we are forswearing divorce forever when we get married... There is no exit door in our marriage. That's pretty scary, isn't it? To commit to that kind of relationship. And these guys are like, you know what? In that case, singleness does not look quite so bad anymore. And we have to ask ourselves, how can we follow such a high calling from Jesus? Jesus is raising a standard of righteousness even higher than the Pharisees. How can we possibly have a marriage filled with lifelong faithfulness to one person, difficult, complaining, and irritating? How can we possibly endure over the course of 40, 50, or 60 years with this person? I think one key is this, that we're worshipers of God, not idolaters of the other person. And there is the temptation in marriage, maybe more so as we're going into marriage and in the early years, to idolize the other person and to seek from that person the joy and satisfaction, the love and acceptance that can only come from God himself. The problem with idols, and of course any good thing can become an idol when it replaces God in our hearts, the problem with idols is that they always disappoint us. They will always disappoint you. And so many marriages, I'm sure, have collapsed because 
the one partner could no longer bear the impossible weight of expectations that their husband or their wife put on them. If I am expecting from Michelle what only God can give, I am going to be a very disappointed, very bitter, very angry, and very demanding person, and our marriage will be destroyed. But if I am someone who is finding his acceptance with God as God's son, who is being sustained every day by the love of God, then I actually have something to give to Michelle when she is being a little bit demanding and difficult, and she will have something to give to me. I can love Michelle much better if I love God even more than her and have healthy expectations of her. The second key, I think, is this. It's all about forgiveness and reconciliation. That's not only what the gospel calls us to, that is what it immerses us in. And as Christians, we are above all people who have been forgiven by the reconciling blood of Christ. And we confess to God regularly, daily and weekly, that we are people who fall short of what he expects. And we are sinners who deserve God's judgment. And again and again, we receive free, generous, and full forgiveness from God in Christ. That is just the air that we breathe, the air of grace every day. And when we ourselves have been forgiven much, guess what? We become people who are able to love much. Not just love God much, but love the people around us. And when our husband or wife sins against us, we can remember, I also am a sinner and I have been forgiven by God. We don't want to be like the guy that Jesus told about in his parable who was forgiven millions of dollars by his boss, the king, and then he grabbed his fellow servant by the throat and said, pay what you owe. That is often how we can treat each other in our marriages. Pay what you owe. But God says, no, you have been forgiven an enormous amount, and now you have the joy of forgiving others. Marriage is a great theme in Scripture about God's relationship with his covenant people. And the book of Hosea is about the prophet's call to marry a prostitute so that he can experience and demonstrate in his own marriage God's faithfulness to unfaithful Israel. See, the Pharisees demanded divorce in the case of adultery. There was no option. You had to divorce your wife if you discovered she was unfaithful. But Jesus does never, never requires divorce, even in the case of adultery. If there is the possibility of reconciliation, we need to seek that as Jesus' disciples, because we ourselves have experienced forgiveness and reconciliation. My grandfather on my mom's side died in 1981, I think. And he was a Christian, at least a nominal Christian, but he was a harsh man. He grew up in this very fundamentalist, condemning type of church. My grandmother was a joyful woman. She was, we would be singing hymns, and that would really make him angry. And he was constantly doing small and petty things to um, try to take away her joy. In fact, the way they got married was this. He said, if you don't marry me, I'm going to kill myself. That was the beginning of their relationship. The worst possible way you can begin a marriage. And she endured being married to this man for many, many, many years. And he smoked a pipe, and he was dying of lung cancer. And in the hospital, on his deathbed, he gave his life to Christ. And the doctor said, there's no hope for you. You're going to die, so you might as well go home. And he went home, and he spent one last week with my grandmother. She said it was the best week they ever had in their marriage. That God, in his kindness, brought forth this wonderful grace of reconciliation to my grandfather, who was a horrible, selfish, mean, and cruel person. And God brought something tender and beautiful into their marriage at, their very, at the very end. And they died. He died forgiven and reconciled to his wife. And that is a picture of what God wants all of us who are married to experience in our marriages. And when Peter was asking Jesus about forgiving even 70 times 7, you wonder what kind of relationship would possibly require that much forgiveness. 
marriage does. 70 times 7 times 70 times 7. You have almost unlimited opportunities to forgive and to be forgiven by the other person. Marriage is like a matrix of the gospel. Is this mere theory that we come to church and read about and sing about, or is the gospel a power that can actually be lived out in our lives by the Holy Spirit? Our marriages are meant to be anchored in the stability of God's own covenant love. Again and again in the Old Testament, you come across this Hebrew word chesed, which means God's steadfast love, his covenant loyalty to his people. What Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible describes as God's never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. That is what the love of God is like. And you and I, if we are Christians, stand rooted and anchored in God's covenant love. And he says over each of us, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And in our marriages, we ought to be able to say that over one another. I love you, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And we say that in the sweetest moments of our marriage, but we are also invited to say that in the most difficult moments of our marriage. To say, I am extremely angry at you right now, and you have really hurt my feelings, and you have sinned against me, and we have some serious issues we need to discuss But before we sit down and have a difficult conversation, I want to remind you, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you because I have experienced God's covenant love myself. We are about to celebrate Holy Communion this afternoon. And the bread and the cup are like the marriage tokens of God's covenant love towards us in Christ. They're like the wedding ring that continually reminds us that Jesus Christ will never leave us and he will never forsake us. He has given his very own self. He is the perfect husband who lays down his life for his unworthy and often unfaithful bride. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He has given us his very self. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.